0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 126 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Happy spring, everybody.
1: Yes, happy spring. It is definitely springing around our parts here on the Connecticut shoreline. We've had some warm temps, like practically in the 60s and sunny days and much less wind than the winter usually brings. So it's been uh, really enjoyable the last few days here.
0: It has. It has. I'm enjoying the nicer weather, although all the blooming has made my allergies bloom. So apologies, everyone. I'm recovering from a little bit of a cold. So I've got my sultry voice on today.
1: (laughs) Nice. And I do have to give a nod to winter and say I do feel slightly guilty. But, you know, you'll be back winter. That's right. (laughs) Well, I thought I'd start today with an Emily Dickinson poem. Because we've talked about her quite a few times on the podcast. We've visited her home up in Amherst, and I've been watching the Dickinson, the Apple TV series, which is just so much fun. And I thought I'd share one of her famous poems. It's called Wild Nights. And it's a it's a short one, as many of hers are. So here goes. Wild Nights, Wild Nights. Were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile the winds to heart and port. Done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea. Might I but more tonight in thee.
0: Mm. She's just so gifted with the short poem. She sure
1: is. And that one, it's circa 1861 is when they
0: think she may have written that one. I have the pleasure of getting to see Chris as she reads it. That looks like it's in a really big collection.
1: Yes, this is The Complete Poems of Emily Dickinson, edited by Thomas H. Johnson. It's my old grad school copy that's definitely, you know, falling apart here and there. (laughs) Um, Been well loved. Yeah, yeah, totally well loved. So I, I know that there's been a newer scholarly edition that came out uh, that I've been contemplating getting but you know how it is when you have a well-loved book you don't want to let it go for something new and shiny that's right it
0: depends
1: (laughs) I know well I think those poems might be that new edition that I'm thinking of new it could be 20 years old at this point but I think it is more exact to how she used her punctuation and things like that
0: Interesting. Yeah, I remember when we got to visit her house, there was a really cool display that you could play with that where you moved punctuation around, right? And things like that. Yeah,
1: punctuation in different words that she changed. And so you could see how the punctuation or a different word choice could really change the meaning of a poem. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun thing. Yeah,
0: very cool. Well, Chris, what are you currently reading?
1: Well, I'm currently doing uh, three books right now. The first, I'll just say really quickly, because I know we've talked about it before. I know we're going to be talking about it again soon. I started The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis by Melissa Homestead. And it's awesome. Awesome, awesome, as expected.
0: I'm so excited for you. I know when you got an early copy of that, it was like, Christmas in March. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, I felt so excited. <laughs> and I'm um just digging into Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. This was supposed to be my weekend read. We're, we're recording on um, Wednesday, everybody. I was supposed to start it this last weekend, and I left it in my office. I was so <sighs> sad when I woke up Saturday morning. So I just started it and I've already talked about it a little bit and obviously I'll be talking about it again after I finish it. So I'll just remind people that this just came out. This is the first book that he's published since winning the Nobel. It's about an artificial friend is how he refers to Clara and her awaiting being adopted. She's currently in a store awaiting adoption. So more to come on that one. Interesting.
1: All right. So I'm reading two other things right now. I just picked up from the library. It's a poetry collection by Lucille Clifton. And I do not remember why I requested this. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's Blessing the Boats, New and Selected Poems from 1988 to 2000. And so this pulls poems from several of her collections. So I've started reading around. When I'm reading poetry lately, I just tend to hop around a collection which is kind of fun, and sometimes I end up reading the same, uh, you know, a poem a second time. You know, is she still alive? I'm, You know, I don't even know, like I said, why did I request this? I think she still is around. So more to come on Lucille Clifton. I've never heard of her.
0: So that, yeah. Well, I didn't either, but. (laughs) So it'll be really interesting to see what you think of her poems. Maybe you can read one for us next round.
2: Yes.
1: Now, the other thing I'm reading is a big honking book. I'm sh- holding it up for Emily to see. It's oh, huge. Yeah. This is the new book by Dolly Parton. It's called Dolly Parton Songteller My Life and Lyrics. And she co wrote this with Robert K. Oberman. It's huge. It just came out in November and it pretty much chronicles 175 of her songs. Wow. Some of them, it'll just maybe have the lyrics, but others, it'll have the lyrics to the song on one page and then a document, something from her archives or a photograph, many, I guess, that haven't been published before. Um, But you'll see like there are some manuscripts of her poems handwritten. And I love this one, uh, To Two Doors Down, which was a song that came out in 1978. And I believe it was the first time I ever saw Dolly. She was on a John Denver special.
0: Oh, John Denver. (laughs) I remember
1: hearing Two Doors Down and like falling in love with her. Um, And she wrote that at Valley Forge uh, Holiday Inn at the King of Prussia in Pennsylvania. Can you see that, Emily? So you see it on the hotel stationery. Oh, I see. Yeah, and in her handwriting. So it's really cool. And in addition to photographs of her and some of the manuscripts of her songs, there's some memorabilia and things like that. Picture of one of her old favorite guitars. Um, But I'm enjoying just kind of flicking through that. And then again, it just came out in uh, November and I got a copy from the library. That's so cool. So again, that's Dolly Parton's Song Teller, My Life and Lyrics.
0: I know it was like a big drama when Bob Dylan won the Nobel for his songwriting, Mm -hmm. right? Wasn't it the Nobel that he won? I think so. I'm pretty sure. And it's like, of course, I mean, they're writers. They, you know, that's what they're doing. And I feel the same way about comedians. I mean, they're incredible writers that really don't get a nod, I think, in that direction. But... Dolly Parton is one of our most amazing writers in a lot of ways.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I definitely agree that they're writers, but I don't know about getting awards like that because I think the intention for those literary awards are for the written word and not for words that are meant to be performed necessarily.
0: Yeah, but this is a case where the written words become a book, right? Right.
1: Yeah, they the, do. But yeah. they're a
0: derivative. You know, it's yeah. like it's
1: not the it's not something. Yeah, we could go on about this. Yeah. I, it's a sticky subject. I know it is. Yeah. So these songs weren't made to be in a book. They sure. were made to be performed. Yeah. So then that gets into the intention of the author or right. the creator, whatever you want to refer to them as. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, what did you hear when you heard Dylan won that big award? What did you feel?
0: I was really surprised. And then of course, it was, you know, compounded by the fact that he wouldn't go accept the award and you know, all of that. So it became a lot more dramatic. But I mean, I always think it's cool when people think outside the box. So I honor that. But I know there are a lot of deserving authors that were probably, you know, miffed to say the least about that. But, you know, yeah. his his words have affected a lot of people and they have a lot of meaning and he's been doing it, you know, quite some time. So because the Nobel in some ways for literature can be seen as a lifetime achievement award, I think. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of got it in that way. Yeah, I get that,
1: too. And I think like words matter. And mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, if words have an impact, it doesn't really matter how they're delivered, whether right. through song or like comedy routine, as you mentioned, or the written word.
0: We'll see how you feel when Dolly Parton wins the Nobel. <laughs> <laughs> so Emily, what have you just read? I literally just finished this morning a book called What's Mine is Yours by Naima Koster. I was really struggling with this book and actually was going to DNF it. And then I was driving down to the office and thought, why don't you just try the audio and see if that changes it for you? Because I was 50% in. I had given it a good long go. And sure enough, by listening to the audio, it really changed how I felt about the book. It's told from multiple points of view. And I think that's part of what was causing me some trouble. I was just having trouble keeping up with the story. And she goes back and forth in time. She skips around a lot. And there's different families, and I was just really confused. And somehow, once the audio got into my head, it all started to make more sense. The basic gist of it is it's two separate families, and um, they're all dealing with forms of trauma and grief, mostly around the father figures in the family's lives. I believe it starts in the 90s, and then it goes up as far as into the 20, 2019, so to the present day. And part of the story arc is about um, school segregation and desegregation, I should say, which really surprised me because it's very current day. So it was in the early 2000s when the school decides to bus in students from different neighborhoods. And, you know, I felt a little naive. Like that seemed Mm kind of late in the game to me for that to be happening. Where was this? Where is it set? It's set in the South in North Carolina. In okay. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Cause I don't like this. I mean, in some ways, a lot of the south, Southern states integrated schools earlier than some of the Northern schools. Yeah. So it really surprised me. Well, and things get segregated and desegregated and segregated again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I think it was really a push to try to work on particular neighborhoods also, you know, in this book. Mm-hmm. And, So it's really interesting because she also brings up the whole notion of racism and living, you know, where you live and how that affects your life. But also, and I'm not sure I know the correct term for this, and I should, but one of the characters in the book, the mother who's extraordinarily racist, she's white, her children are of mixed race, which I find really shocking you know, Mm -hmm. and had a really hard time. She was not a very likable character, obviously, loved her children tremendously and thought that what she was doing was the right thing for her kids, as you hope most parents do. But um, that was a really interesting story arc. It's also a a book that I really don't want to give any spoilers away because it really unfolds in surprising ways how she whines the story, you know, the going back and forth in time and how the different characters of the different families weave together. So that's really all I'm going to say about it. This um, author, Naima Koster, and this is her second book. Her first book was called Halsey Street, and it was a big success a couple years oh. ago.
1: Yeah, so. I remember that title. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So again, it's What's Mine is Yours by Naima Koster. The other book I just finished is called The Hair by Melanie Finn this book was so unusual and so good. And I read it for my book club. And I can tell you it is a fantastic book club pick so much to discuss. I mean, including an ambiguous ending, which always lends itself to lots of conversation. But there were many other points in the story where we all had kind of different opinions about what was happening and why. And this book is from $2 Radio Press, a really small, cool, independent press out of Columbus, Ohio. And the main character here is Rosie, and she's 20 years old when she meets a very charismatic man at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. He's much her senior. She's a student at MoMA, and she gets swept away by him. And he turns out to not be a very upstanding person. That's all I'm going to say about Mm -hmm. that. And she ends up pregnant with his child. And um, the book starts in Vermont. But then next, we find ourselves in what's referred to as the Gold Coast of Connecticut, which I don't know about you, Chris, I'd never heard of that. Had you heard of that?
1: I have, but I don't know what it is. I assumed it was the part closer to, uh, to New York City. Yes.
0: It's along the shoreline in Connecticut you're right, near New York, kind of what I refer to as south of New Haven. So some of it takes place there, which is really interesting. And you know, a wealthy area that she's living in. And then the rest of the book takes place in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, which is a very different area. It's much more remote and people really fend for themselves are very industrious and heat their homes with wood and you know, things like that. So there's a real dichotomy in the places that the book takes place and there she meets a woman named Billy who's one of my favorite characters in the book who really helps Rose learn how to become independent and raise her daughter which she ends up having to do on her own. There is much more to the story. It's considered to be a literary thriller and since it's a thriller I do not want to give anything away. No spoilers really good, really enjoyable. And what she does do, what Melanie does is she skips ahead, the second half of the book is 26 years ahead of where you start. So Rose is 50 years old at that point. So she brings up a lot about womanhood, from being pregnant, going through menopause, uh, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be taken advantage of as a woman, self-sufficiency, she also does have child abuse in here trigger warning for people there's some darkness with that for sure and she mentions that this book is somewhat autobiographical and that she had her own experience with that and part of why she wanted what inspired her to write this book is you know as a parent of two now young women, her concern for how do you keep your children safe, and, you know, struggling with the notion of that and, you know, writing about it in novel form. I thought that was really brave of her, you know, and I could see also why she's written other novels, which I haven't read, but, you know, why it might take you a little while to be able to handle that subject matter in novel form when you've had your own personal experience with it. And, and I just appreciated her being able to talk about it there's murder, there's intrigue. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> the Hair by Melanie Finn. It was really good. I highly recommend it.
1: Sounds really good. It's a pretty short book.
0: It is. It was it to a...
1: cram all that in?
0: Oh my gosh. I read it in a day. I mean, I basically looked at The Gentleman Caller and was like, see you tonight. Nice. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> this is my Sunday read. It Very was cool. wonderful. I loved it.
1: What about you? I finished one book, and that was A House at the Bottom of the Lake by Josh Mallerman. I mentioned last episode that it was my nighttime ebook reading book, and that I was on the fence about finishing it. I did finish it. It is a thriller as well. Originally came out in 2016 in the UK, and now it's coming out in the US. It's coming out April 30th, so... If you are interested in thrillers, watery thrillers, you might want to check it out. I can't really say that I liked it. It had a an ending, again, where I was like, what? So I had to read the ending a couple times, and I just think it was a weird ending. I think the book as a whole was really, it, like I said, it has a great premise, but the execution just really wasn't there. It is listed as horror thriller, but even in a world where certain horror things are accepted there has to be usually some type of maybe logic to it or the idea of world building needs to kind of make sense there and in this book there just wasn't and one of the themes throughout like i should back up and say it's about these two teenagers a boy and a girl uh james and amelia who have a first date and they go canoeing on this first date they know of these two lakes that are right there where they're canoeing, but then they find a third lake that's through this tunnel, and they're having a wonderful time on this date together, really into each other. And they discover a house underneath the surface of the third lake. They dive down. They're, they're swimming around. Eventually, they get a old one of those old deep-sea diving suits that somebody's cousin had, you know, with the big helmet that they put on, and it's kind of just like a tube that goes up to give you air. And so they have to take turns doing that, because they only have one of those. So eventually they learn how to scuba dive, and they have scuba gear, and they even build a raft. So they spend the night on the raft, tethered to the house, one of the things that they keep saying to each other and one of the things Amelia says to James early on is we can't ask why about this house because it's this house underwater that's in pristine condition. Everything looks great. It's not like it's some house that was existing already and then say they built a dam and a neighborhood got flooded. It's nothing like that. So you don't know why the house is there at all. You you, know, you never learn it. This is spoiler It's going to be a little bit spoilery, and it jumps a lot in time, but you don't, um, I I was not satisfied with either the tension or the, the potential horror or the ending, or even the characters, really. I didn't really get a sense of who they were. I guess if I had to sum it up in one sentence, I'd say this book reads as a really decent first draft. Hmm. It, there's some interesting like gender type things happening. So it is a boy and a girl in love and they have sex for the first time in this house underwater. All right. So that seems hard. Well, <laughs> so, and he, he, okay, I'm going to read this paragraph. So no he pun pulls, intended. Sorry. <laughs> he pulls out, right. Just, you know, as he's close to climaxing. And then it says in the beam of light beside them, They both saw the white cloud rise from the head of his penis, then spread, taken by unseen billows toward the ceiling, toward the walls, beyond the reach of the beam. So his sperm is like floating everywhere. And when it hits the ceiling, Amelia's looking at James expecting him to be happy because they are both virgins and they both finally consummated in that way. But he becomes horrified because when his sperm hits the ceiling... They can start hearing somebody walking on the second floor, and mm. somebody starts laughing in this cackly voice. And this is another quote. And then the androgynous laughter continued to thick globules of sexless cheer. Ooh. So it's like there's this <laughs> androgynous oh. creature that oh.
0: is triggered by the boy's sperm. Mm. I'm I'm still I. I still can't figure out how they're having sex underwater. You never tried that? Well, I mean, they're staying underwater in a house that's underwater. I don't get it, like, in their suits.
1: <laughs> I never tried it either. Um, I'm, c- yeah, I'm like, confused. How can you breathe,
0: right? I know. That's the whole thing. Like I'm getting with... caught up in too many details.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you do, though, because, I mean, that's one of the things with any kind of story. Like, you don't want your reader to start questioning mm-hmm. how and why. And you do in a way that is not productive to keeping you in the story.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah.
1: But yet you still finished it. This one really did intrigue me in a way. And I was hoping things would start to make sense and they never did. And then Mm -hmm. again, the ending was kind of like what? (laughs) That again was a house at the bottom of the lake by Josh
0: Mallerman. Wow. Sounds interesting. (laughs) I finished a nonfiction book called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters by Kate Murphy. This is the one I've talked about before that was on my nightstand for over a year. Crazy. I finally got the audiobook from Libro FM. Reminder, we're an affiliate of Libro FM. So if you go to their website and use the promo code bookcougars, you get two books for the price of one. Great audiobook platform. I really enjoy using it. And, you know, I finally decided if I got this on audio, I would really dig into it. So I did both read it and listen to it. It's a book I have to say, sometimes when I'm listening to an audiobook, my mind wanders. And when you're reading a book entitled You're Not Listening, it does give you an added <laughs> layer of guilt when you find your mind wandering. So I did do a lot of rewinding in this book. It's Very thought provoking, so much to talk about. One of the main takeaways I got from it is that we can think faster than someone can talk, which is why we often find ourselves with our mind wandering as someone is telling us something, which is why you can then be accused of being a bad listener or just feel like a bad listener. And it's something like for me, that's often what happens when I'm first meeting someone when I'm getting introduced, it's like my mind is thinking all of these thoughts as I'm being introduced to them, which is often why I miss their name. So it's, it, by reading this book, it really makes me realize like, stop, stop your mind, stop thinking when someone is introducing you or introducing themselves. The other thing is that you often don't listen well, because you're trying to think of what you're going to say. Mm -hmm. So that's something she really addresses, which I thought was interesting.
1: Yeah, totally interesting. I know when I first meet somebody, I do try really hard to remember their name because I have a challenge with that too. But then I start thinking about what the person who's introducing us is saying or what they're saying about themselves and I guess making connections in my brain and then the name is gone right
0: exactly i mean i know there's those games you can play to try to remember their name and all that but again my mind is always thinking about so many things so thinking about this or listening to this book and thinking about those words of hers i feel like i want to make a a much more concerted effort even though i still think we should all wear name tags but that's a whole other thing so yes
1: that would be good
0: (laughs) she also talks about the amygdala which is one of the two almond-shaped structures in the primitive part of the brain that primes us to react when we perceive a threat. So it's what makes you jump, like if you see a snake or something like that. And she said, it's also what propels people into a blind rage when someone cuts them off in traffic or makes someone tweet a bit of vitriol so out of proportion it defies reason. And she says that research shows there's an inverse relationship between amygdala activity and activity in areas of the brain involved in careful listening. So in other words, our reaction to things can also prevent us from being able to just be listening because we're kind of in that fight or flight, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I found that really interesting and that it can really affect your ability to have conversations with people. She touches on a lot of different research, she brings in improv, she interviews people who teach improv and how important it is to learn how to listen in order to do improv. She also talks about Terry Gross, who interviews people for Fresh Air and how a lot of the people who are producers for her, actually they're hired just because they're really good listeners. They might not know anything about radio, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And they kind of deconstruct an interview and in how they decide what to keep in and not to keep in. It was a really good book. The other really big takeaway for me was she talks about how the voices that we have in our head and the how what we heard from the caretakers we had growing up are what affect the voices we have in our head. You know, whether you kind of have negative self-talk or positive self-talk. Really affects how you hear people when they talk to you, because your own internal dialogue will affect how you listen and hear to what people are saying to you.
1: That's really interesting. That's kind of like seeing too. Like people sometimes see what they want to see, and I guess hear what they want to hear. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, yeah, a more objective vision or hearing.
0: Yeah, I mean, this book really made me do a lot of thinking and I finished it and you know, longtime listeners know I'm not a rereader. But I went right back to the beginning and started listening again. And I intend to listen to the whole book all the way through because a lot of my job requires me to listen. Our relationships with each other are all about listening, right? So I really want to improve my listening skills. And I feel like she had some good takeaways for that. But I don't think I got it on the first pass because maybe I wasn't listening well. So (laughs) again, it's called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters by Kate Murphy. And I did listen to the audio book and read it as well.
1: Sounds fascinating. I'm going to check that one out for sure.
0: The last book I read, I'm not going to talk about very much because we're going to actually have the author on uh, in May, I believe. It's called Me, Myself, and Him by Chris Tebbets. Chris, this is his debut novel. He's also, I'm not sure if we call it a co-writer or a ghostwriter along with James Patterson. So his name has been on quite a few other books, but this is the first book that's just his alone and it's a YA novel for kids ages 14 and up. And Chris, ironically, is the name of the main character. The book opens because he has passed out in the back parking lot of the restaurant that he works at because he got high on whippets and passed mm-hmm. out and smashed his nose. That's kind of intense. Um he's a rising freshman college freshman, so he's just finishing up high school. And um, he's living in a very small town, looking forward to heading off to college. But because of this accident, he ends up in the emergency room and it becomes clear that he has a little bit of a problem, or does he, with drugs. And his father is a physicist who doesn't live with him anymore. He lives in California and Chris is living in Ohio. And so after the opening scene and this thing that has happened, the book then takes off in two different directions with alternative story arcs. So there's chapter one of one story and chapter one of another story of different realities that could possibly be taking place after this happens. So it's kind of one of those sliding door books That's interesting it took me a minute to get it i mean fortunately they have like different font for the different chapters and you're like oh chapter one chapter one chapter two chapter two and then finally you kind of get it you know <laughs> i really enjoyed it. it it was interesting and so he ends up in one of the storylines he ends up going to california to live with his father and the other storyline he's in ohio i appreciated the small town nature of the parts in ohio having been born and raised in Ohio myself, and Chris Tebbets and I actually grew up together, so I really recognize tones of our small town, Yellow Springs, Ohio, in the book, so I can't wait to talk to him about that. Oh, that's really neat, yeah, again, the book is called "Me, Myself, and Him" by Chris Tebbets, and it might also get an award for one of the funnest, most fun, most fun covers I've seen in a long time. I'm showing it to Chris. <laughs> It's um, whipped cream canisters, the kind that you kind of shake and spray. And uh, one of them says me, the other says myself, and the other says and him, multicolored me, myself, and him.
1: So the different storylines is like one of them
0: where he's an addict and the other he's not? No, they are all where he's this has happened, but it's where he's telling different truths about it and having to live with the circumstances of the different truths. Okay. The other thing I should say is it's, I thought it was going to be a coming out novel as well, because the main character, Chris is gay, and he's looking to have kind of his first relationship, you know. Mm -hmm. But what was really interesting, because it takes place in current day is he, he was out, all of that was just he was out, which I really appreciated. You know, he was out with his friends, he was out with his parents. And he has two best friends that are heterosexual and they're a solid threesome and they hang out together. And he's looking for love in his own way, which can be challenging in a small town because there's just not many to choose from. And so when the story arc goes, the story arc that goes to California offers him the opportunity for love as well, which was really fun. But then at some point, the stories have to come together the two realities come together towards the end. And it was very interesting to see how Chris, the author, tied that all up. It was it was fun.
1: Very cool. Sounds intriguing.
0: Biblio adventures. I only had one biblio adventure in the past couple of weeks, and that was watching Melanie Finn, the author of The Hair, discuss the book with her publisher, Two Dollar Radio. Melanie actually lives up in the Northeast Kingdom. And it was really funny, because I had wanted to attend, she was supposed to have an event at the Northshire up in Manchester, Vermont, you know, a zoom one, but she couldn't, it got canceled, because her horse got loose, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So She had to cancel poor thing. And when I was listening to this event, which I was listening to it after the fact, you could hear her horse. At least she kept saying, oh, you can hear the horse neighing in the background. I don't think I heard it, but it was funny. So she obviously lives, you know, with enough land to have a horse anyway. But it was really interesting to hear her talk about the book. Um, I've already talked about it, my impression of reading it. I can't say that I've ever seen a publisher interview the author. So it was kind of interesting to hear their conversation because he's published I think this is her third book with them. So they kind of talked a little bit just about the process and editing and things like that. So it was fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, I had two Biblio adventures, but both of them were Zoom adventures. The first one was through the Jane Addams Hull House Museum. It was with Michelle Duster in conversation with Essence McDowell. And Duster's new book is called Ida Be the Queen. The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. And Michelle Duster is the great-granddaughter of Ida B. Wells. I didn't catch the beginning of the event, unfortunately, but I was able to catch towards the end and really enjoyed the conversation that I did hear. For people who don't know, Ida B. Wells was a hugely important social reformer who fought for women's rights and created a very big and powerful and impactful anti-lynching campaign. But during the Q&A, somebody asked, well, what can we do today to make a difference? And one of the things that I really appreciated Michelle saying was that you can make a difference in your family with one person, and that's important. So often, people get caught up in the big things that they could do. And, you know, the truth is it takes all different levels of creating change. And so she was saying, don't discount that and look for what you could do right there in your own life. I look forward to checking out this book. I've never really read about Ida B. Wells. I've heard about her or I may have, you know, read about her in a book concerning other women and other issues. But I am interested in learning more about her life and her legacy. And then... The person that Duster was in conversation with, Essence McDowell, had a book that came out just a couple of years ago called Lifting As They Climbed, Mapping a History of Black Women on Chicago's South Side. And she co-wrote that with Miriam Kaba. And that book, so they started talking about McDowell's book, too, because the homes of Ida B. Wells and the buildings associated with her, they were torn down and they're just still empty lots. And so one of the purposes for McDowell's book was to really look at these places where influential black women have lived to mark their homes so that people know that they're there, not only to honor the woman who lived there, but to make it known that this is a place that's important, you know, because the conversation was like, if you don't know that some place is important, then it's easy to tear it down either intentionally or unintentionally. You know, we've talked before on the podcast about how minority people and people on the edges have been removed from history and erased from physical landscapes. So it was a really interesting conversation as much as I caught of it, and I'm definitely going to check out both of their books. I did look a little bit online, and Essence McDowell's, there. there is an online component too where you can see some maps and things of the locations of these houses on the south side, but I haven't played much with it yet. That's so cool. But again, the main book was by Michelle Duster, and it's Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. The second event I attended was a Willa Cather-related event. This was a really good event with Tracy Tucker, who is the archivist at the National Willa Cather Center. And this event was via the Somerset County Library System in New Jersey. They had her on as part of their Women's History Month programming. And the focus of the talk was Cather's unconventional life. One of the points that's, you know, one of the, you know, the famous pictures of Cather with her crew cuts, her really closely cropped hair, considered very radical for the late 19th century. People point to that for a lot of things, you know, that she's rebellious, That, you know, maybe it had something to do with her gender expression. One of the things that Tracy Tucker found doing research was that from 1885 to 1890, there was a short hair craze. And she found a bunch of articles, newspaper articles, opinion pieces, condemning like what they called the lady barbers who were cutting women's hair short. And they were cautionary articles saying stuff like, you know, your hair might not grow back. Don't do it. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. And these were articles, some of them, in Nebraska newspapers. So, you know, I love that kind of research that shows, you know, maybe Cather, I mean, definitely, that was definitely different for the late 19th century for a girl to do that. But maybe she wasn't exactly the only one who did it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's
0: fascinating.
1: And uh, I guess there's a, f- a photo of another girl in a nearby town who also cut her hair off.
0: See, I think of short hair, too, as like a, a you know, it's like freedom. It's, you know, freeing to have short hair. So mm-hmm. that's hilarious that they would connotate it with, you know, horror and terrible things. And
1: Well, you know, it is all part of that gender conformity. Yeah, Women have to have long hair and... Yep. It has to be styled in a certain way. I mean, even when I was in the Marine Corps in the 1980s, you were not a woman was not allowed to get a crew cut or to shave her hair off. You had to have what they called "quote femininely styled" hair. Wow, which you know, my hair has never really been femininely styled. But (laughs) the fact that if I would have gotten a crew cut, and I remember having a conversation with somebody about this, that I would have been disciplined. For that, because you do have to conform, at least back then, to gender norms. Wow. What an interesting fact. Yeah. I mean, just about the physical control of hair, too. I mean, the time that it takes and then that it is a way that people can catch women. Yeah. And controlled physically. So anyway, interesting topic, I thought. And I always love to learn a new thing about you know, not just a certain art, particular author's life, but the time period in general. Because I think one of the mistakes we often make as readers when we're reading fiction is to put the author's opinion in it when it might not be. You know, right. it, it could be something of the time period. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense, you know? Yeah, so, no, really interesting. And it's why these auth- these people who go back and research history it's such a gift you know that Mm -hmm. she found that little nugget of information is really cool all right upcoming jaunts
1: do you have any scheduled you know what i don't have anything new on the book that i haven't mentioned before
0: how about you I only have one and it's on April 9th with Naima Koster in conversation with Jacqueline Woodson. I'm so excited about that. And Chris, it's at a bookstore I've never heard of in Brooklyn called Cafe Con Libros. You ever heard of it? I have not. It's bills itself as an intersectional feminist bookstore and coffee shop. Wow, we need to go. Yeah, definitely that one when we're out Biblio adventuring back on subways etc that one's high on my list so this is april 9th from 7 to 8 p.m eastern time and um, you do you can register for it it's free and reminder naima Koster is the author of what's mine is yours very cool so what about upcoming reads i have two that i'm very excited about One is called Mother May I by Jocelyn Jackson, who's one of my go-to authors whenever she has a new book out. And that's coming out on April 6th. And then a memoir called Somebody's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford. And that one is coming out on June 1st. What about you? Nice. Well, I have two as well. The first is...
1: An advanced reader copy of a book that's coming out on may 11th it's nonfiction called digital body language how to build trust and connection no matter the distance it's by erica dawan she wrote an, a previous book that was called get big things done she co-authored that book but this one digital body language i found it really intriguing especially as i'm doing a lot of my classwork online or all of it online for the most part and you know we communicate so much via social media and we make connections that way so
0: i thought this might be a really interesting book to read at this point in my life in particular for sure i mean it's interesting because part of that book you're not listening she talks about you know we're also communicating in such different ways so that's that's a i'll be really curious to know what you learned from that book
1: yeah right do we even know do we even understand what we're saying to somebody else and then are they hearing or reading what we think we said? It's wild.
0: In 140 characters on Twitter. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then the other book I picked up, I was browsing in our library's graphic novel section, the adult graphic novel section, and I found this graphic novel. It's volume one. It's called Witches. You see that? It's kind of dark cover. Yeah. And witches, witches with a, is with a Y. Yeah, it's W-Y-T-C-H-E-S It's blurbed by Stephen King, which I'm ignoring It's fabulous, <laughs> a triumph Because um, I've talked before about how Stephen King, he blurbs so much And I've never read a book he's blurbed that I've totally enjoyed Like, some of them he'll say, the most horrifying thing And I'm like, dude, that was so boring <laughs> But somebody else on the back blurbed it. it. Actually, MTV News says, the most terrifying comic you'll ever
0: read. Wow, I didn't even know MTV News existed anymore. That's how long it's been since I've watched television.
1: Yeah, well, this came out in June 2015, volume one anyway. And the story is by Scott Snyder. And the art is by Jock.
0: Sounds
1: great. Yeah, I thought since I'm reading so many textbooks and articles and stuff, it would be fun to read something that's very visual.
0: Yes. Yeah, for sure. And I'm just thrilled that when you said that you took a browse in the library. That's so nice. I'm glad you got time to do that. It's good for the soul. Yeah.
1: Well, our library system here, we are, they're expanding the hours more. I think the last two weeks here in Connecticut, we've seen a drop in new infection rates which is good. But then at the same time, we've opened up um, a lot of capacities and things. So I think everybody is kind of holding their breath to see what's going to happen in the coming weeks. Yeah, fingers crossed for
0: sure. Yeah. Well, coming up, everybody, we have an interview with author Luann Rice about her new book, The Shadow Box. We had such a good time talking with her. We really did. Such a joy. And this book is really good. We both gave it a th- thumbs up, or we both gave it two thumbs up. So we gave it four thumbs up here at the Book Cougars. Yeah, a full paw, <laughs> a full paw. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, this is a uh, Luann. There's some personal aspects to this book as well. It's a novel, but she talked to us about that, and really appreciate her honesty and you know, opening up and and sharing personal stories with us. We hope you enjoy this interview. We hope you get the book. It is a standalone, but there are some characters in this book that also appeared in the book she published prior to this called Last Day, which I also read and recommend.
1: We're so excited to talk today with Luann Rice, author of 36 novels that have been translated into 27 languages. Several of Luann's books have also been adapted for TV by TNT, CBS, Hallmark, and Lifetime. She's also written for the stage and has walked the boards herself as a performer off Broadway and in LA. Three of Luann's novels are geared toward young adults and they all often focus on love, family, nature, and the sea. Luann lives on the Connecticut shoreline and is a creative affiliate of the Safina Center. Before we jump in, Emily and I want to acknowledge our friend and listener Deb in Chicago who told us about Luann's books a couple years ago and she knew we'd love them in part for our mutual love of nature and the sea. We finally heeded Deb's advice, and both of us have read and loved Luann's new novel, The Shadow Box. Wow. I mean, we both really loved it, proving once again that the best book recommendations come via word of mouth from other readers. Welcome, Luann. It's so great to have you here today.
2: Thank you so much, Chris and Emily. I'm really excited to be with the book Cougars. I'm such a fan of yours. And it's funny, I have a good friend, Deb, who's a book lover in Chicago. And I wonder if it's the same Deb. Is it? Yes. It is. Wow, <laughs> I'm gonna have to give her thank her and give her a shout out. She's <laughs> wonderful. I love I love Deb.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've met Deb. I think the first time I met Deb was in Vermont, actually at a Booktopia event up at the North Shire bookstore. Is that where you met her, Chris? No, yes. I met her.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you. Yes. Oh, <laughs> no, sorry. She must have been with Becky then. Yes. Yeah. yeah Becky from New York. Yes. Oh, yes. In Florida now, but um, yeah. we yeah. So we met through Bruce Springsteen. It's kind of a long story, but we were fans of his and connected, and you know, and I've met both of them several times. And Deb, in particular, I was at a book fair out in Chicago, and she came and. We had a a really nice visit and, you know, and then I did a reading at Anderson's and she came to that too. So, yeah. Oh, I'm so happy to know that. (laughs) Mutual book friends. They're the best.
1: Such a small world. And I'm originally from Chicago, but, you know, I didn't meet Deb until I was living in Connecticut and we met in Vermont. So it's just so amazing how people get connected.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) well Luann one of the things we love about your books is the love that you share for the Connecticut shoreline the shoreline and sailing and nature and the beach kind of is it's the atmosphere of the book and almost becomes a character itself can you tell us about your own love of the Connecticut shoreline yes thank you for noticing that I love it so much.
2: It's really, it's, you know, it's in my blood, like salt water. I mean, it's just incredible. And wherever I live, I write about this little section of the shoreline, which is really old lime, but I call it Black Hall in my novels. And the beach area that I actually live at, I call Hubbard's Point. And so I think when I was living in various places, and I would call forth kind of the spirit of this place I felt like it helped me from being homesick and and so it it was easy to write about because I feel like I've internalized it so much I've been here really off and on for my entire life from birth so and are you a sailor there's so much sailing
0: language in this
2: book I, I I do sail my both my sisters are really big time sailors and my youngest sister in particular Maureen she raced for years in Noank and the Wednesday night races, and she and her husband, you know, were very competitive sailors. And so I I do go out with them a lot. And you know, when I was young, I grew up sailing um, little dinghies really off the beach or in kind of the the local waters. Uh, but I love it a lot. And I I did a I did an oceanographic research cruise. This was really a semester that was at Woods Hole, and then we sailed uh, through the Caribbean on a 100 foot staysail schooner. Called Westward, and the name of the program was SEA, Sea Education Association, and uh, you know, so being at sea on this really big schooner and learning not only you know oceanographic and marine biology subjects, but also nautical science. So, you know, taking the wheel and navigating, even celestial navigation, which I just loved. You know, it's so romantic. Um, so yeah, I I am on the water whenever I can be
1: beautiful and you know one of the things too I liked uh, uh, the way you use the water in the book it's not just you know I've read other books that are placed on a shoreline that are you can tell they're just kind of placed there they're not really of that place but like there are scenes in your book where two of the characters are standing on the docks and the docks are creaking because the water's gently ebbing and flowing Mm -hmm. rising and falling I should say because there's a big storm out at sea and I feel like that's the kind of thing that when you're local to the shoreline or you've lived on the shoreline for a while you feel and it's just part of your existence so to see that those types of details in your book it was really exciting
2: thank you I it's interesting I think being by the sea sound plays such a big role in it you know just hearing the waves or and what you you know what you're talking about i'm a, I'm set up above the beach, but also above a boat basin, and the boats are on you know they're attached in their slips by pulleys, you know, so they can rise and fall. And when there is a storm at sea, like it can be flat calm, it can appear to be flat calm, but the way you know the storm is coming is that you start to hear the creaking of those pulleys. And it's it's like a harbinger, you know, and the next thing you know, <laughs> the waves are rolling in. And yeah. it's like way out at sea, the, there are big rollers, but, you know, here it might be very calm, but, you know, and then the next day we'll have, you know, we could practically surf,
0: <laughs> right? It's that, that old adage, the calm before the storm. It <laughs> is
2: completely. And and today, there are foghorns and it's not foggy here. Um, in fact, I can look out and see Orient Point, I can see right across the sound, but they're a foghorn. So um, that's a very haunting and beautiful sound too. Mm-hmm. So it must be foggy somewhere,
0: probably a little more to the east of where I am. So let's talk a little bit more directly about the shadow box. The book is beautiful. Literally the physical book is beautiful. I'm holding it up as if Luann hasn't seen it already <laughs> and it has a beautiful cover, but then we've, we've done a video already of the actual, Inside hard cover of this book which is a shadow box can you describe to the listeners what a shadow box is sure well in this case uh, i mean there are different ways
2: to create a shadow box but in this case its main character claire chase is a beachcomber and she loves to pick up little objects from the beach and from her walks through the woods so she collects things that are meaningful to her that might not be to somebody else but like crab claws or jingle shells, you know, maybe like a piece of driftwood with some barnacles on it, uh, a rusty old hinge, things like that. And if I were to show you my bookshelves right around the corner here, you'd see that on almost every one, there's like collections of things that I have picked up on my walks. And so in the novel, Claire uh, builds like boxes that are um, maybe a couple of inches deep, um, maybe about the size of. I don't know like maybe the size of a small window really and she will fill them with what she collects and they tell a story they add up to something that only she really knows but some people who know her well can possibly discern and kind of figure out the mystery but I'm so glad you like the cover and I would like to just give a, a shout out to the to the um designer her name is Shasti O'Leary Sudant and she, um, she designed some of my other previous book covers at it at, when I was at a different publisher and we so this has been a, a great reunion and she also did last day my, my last novel but I just I, you know, sometimes the un, unsung heroes of the publishing business, you know, but she's a true artist and I feel very lucky so thanks for mentioning that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the themes or the of this book the shadow box is domestic violence. And we just wanted to talk a little bit about that with you, just the insidious nature, especially of emotional abuse, mm-hmm. where there are no scars, physical scars or bruises to hide. We, we know that there was a local article in the local paper recently that we both read an interview with you about domestic violence. And so we were just wondering if you would be willing to talk a little bit about that and how you represent that in fiction.
2: I feel that exactly what you said, that it's really important to bring awareness to the fact that emotional and verbal abuse can be as or more damaging than physical abuse, partly because it it goes in so deep and affects people at such a level that it can change your life in a very slow way compared to, obviously, if somebody beats you or attacks you in a physical way, it's dreadful and it's but you know it's dreadful. You know If that happens, you, the police are going to come, or you're going to go to the hospital. But with emotional abuse, it's, it's really insidious. And part of the dynamic is that the abuser will cut you off from support system, from family, sisters, friends. And so you're kind of taking it and taking it and trying to figure out what can I do differently that will make this stop? Because you're being told it's your fault. It did happen to me. I did go through it and I didn't even see it coming. I, you know, the the person was very charming, very well-liked by everybody who I think that, you know, I mean, obviously not everybody because he did have a past, which I had, didn't know about at the time when I got together with him, but he did have a past where he had physically abused women that he was with. But he'd gotten arrested for it and he'd gotten called out on it. I had no idea about this when I, you know, when I began to live with him. But because he learned, you know, that if you show signs, you will be in trouble. So he kind of learned instead to do this different kind of emotional thing. Um, It could be things like the silent treatment. Like, really, I don't know if anybody here is listening, has had that happen, but the silent treatment can be really brutal, you know, it's sort of like, it's just, you can feel this smoldering rage, and to be ignored that way, you know, to be not responded to, he he used to say, I'm going to have to get out of here, because I might, I don't want to do anything, so it would be like threats like that, that would leave me really terrified, you know, and eventually I got help, I feel really lucky that I did. I got out of it, but it it took a while because it, I kept thinking, "Is it that bad?" You know, and, and and once you've invested some time, you you love the person uh, because that's another dynamic. Often, uh, the abuser can present himself as being very wounded and damaged. What look what other people have done to me, and you're the only one who understands me. I am now very involved with Safe Futures, which is a domestic violence center in New London. And the, the women there are amazing. Kathy Verano is the director. And uh Melissa Zaichek is um there as well. And I have gotten so much support from them. Now, this all happened to me very long ago, but it's still in, you know, it's still with me. I've I've healed a ton, but and I guess I feel like writing about it it helps me understand it more because you know my characters understand it and i i hope that if you know if a reader is going through anything like this that it validates what she's going through yeah
1: thank you so much for talking about your experience and and for writing this book as a way to hopefully help people who are in situations and you know domestic violence has a lot of different you know, it's not just men battering women or abusing women. Women can be the abuser. There's also parents and children, siblings. I think most states have a definition of domestic abuse and violence of people who are cohabitating, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, regardless of.
2: Right. And there's elder abuse. I mean, where children can abuse their elderly parents. Um, I know, and I did use the, you know, I did use the pronoun, you know, she um, or her, partly because that's my experience. Uh, and I think probably percentage-wise, it's more often that dynamic, but mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. It can be, anybody can be yeah. a- attacked in that way.
1: Yeah, but I do think uh, overwhelmingly, it is generally the man who is the perpetrator. I think we've seen that highlighted in our society the last few years, for sure. We just also wanted to give out the national hotline. The national hotline number is 1-800-799-7233. And that 7233 spells safe. So just remember 800-799-SAFE. They also have a website, thehotline.org, where you can chat with people text chat. Um, and they also, though, give a warning that if you are in a situation where your abuser is tracking your internet usage, they have a safe button to click out of that. So it won't be tracked, which I thought was pretty yeah. a great warning for people. But thank you, Luann, for, for bringing this, uh, the emotional abuse to light, because I do think so many people think, oh, I'm crazy. I know, you know, saying the word crazy is not exactly the best term, but I do think that's, what a lot of people feel in that situation, because it's like, he loves me. I know he loves me.
2: Exactly. And, and yeah, I agree with you about that. And, you know, I don't, so I, I don't identify as a victim. I, I don't feel like one. I certainly feel as if I am way past the worst of it, but naming it is important, you know, in acknowledging it. I mean, everyone who knows me closely knows that I went through it. I'm open about it because I feel like it destigmatizes the situation because you do feel like it's your fault. And people who don't understand are like, why didn't she leave? But the question should be, why does he do it?
0: You know, right?
2: It's right. Not on, or, you know, it's yeah. not on the person who it's
0: being done to. Um, right. And it's one of the things I think you do so well in the book is, is paint the picture. So Claire is the main character and she's the one that's suffering at the hands of her husband Griffin. And he's a very charismatic character. And he also is surrounded by people who are interested in protecting him and kind of have a stake in his future, because he's destined to be the next governor of the state of Connecticut, which as a Connecticut resident, as I was reading this was totally freaking me out, I have to say. (laughs) But, you know, I think the other thing you really do well in the book is help a person to see how like the clan behavior and that group think that takes place, when people are invested in someone, and they don't, necessarily want to see who they truly are, or they see it and it's whoever's suffering at their hand, you know, like they're just going to be the fallout and stuck it up. And that's, you, you know, your problem to deal with.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And the, you know, tendency is to first of all, protect, you know, the person who's being abused very often protects the abuser because, partly out of shame and partly out of love and partly out of confusion and then you know in this case where you know griffin is he's a state's attorney and he's about to run for governor and as you mentioned like he's surrounded by these people who really need him to be in power and that is partly the dynamic you know the power dynamic is such a big part of of abuse and i mean on any level it doesn't have to be that you're partners is about to run for governor, but it's just a way of, you know, controlling their environment and keeping you in line. It's sort of a, you know, and but this is like a macro version of that, where it's at this, you know, it's at the public level and the state level, um, and people don't really know that he's doing this because it is behind closed doors, but he definitely has a, a side and an edge that uh, some in and, and, and actually a past uh, crime that should it come to light, it would probably completely ruin his, his career. And uh, those who know about that crime are very invested in making sure that no one tells about it or finds out about it.
0: Right. And we're going to be very cagey as we talk about this book, because it is a mystery that unfolds. And we don't want to have any spoilers as we talk to Luann. We highly recommend you go and read the book and find out for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't
1: put it down. I, I started it and, you know, I started it at 11 o'clock at night, <laughs> stayed up way too late and really just, it's one of those books, like I wanted to see what was going to happen, but I also didn't want it to end because I really liked Claire and, and some of the other characters and you really just brought to light so much of, not uh, to life, I should say, so much of what we've been hearing about for a long time in our society about the wealthy, protecting their own, the wealthy and the powerful getting away with things. And it's not just, you know, the men, it's women are implicated. And part of that system as well, you know, as one of the characters say, you know, we, we protect our own. And so I just really felt like I was reading uh, something that was really true to life.
2: Thank you. Um, That's, you know, wonderful to hear. Cause obviously when, I think anybody's writing fiction you're creating a world and to have readers believe it or to enter into it so fully that it feels real is is really like a wonderful compliment so I love that but yeah like in I'm thinking of some of the very wealthy insular communities uh, that aren't you know too far from where I am right now and not that they are Full of anybody but lovely people. But it is, you know, it's sometimes hard to break into that circle. And, you know, once you're in it, it's probably very hard to break out of it.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and to really, as you said, if you're suffering at the hands of someone who's chipping away at your soul, that makes it even more, you start to have, be filled with self doubt. And yeah. one of the things that Claire does to, work through her emotions as this in this book as she does turn to nature and art and there's a scene where um, her ex husband who she still has a, a good relationship with comes in to her art studio and he's looking at a particular shadow box and he says you've captured pain and apprehension what took you to this place he's looking at the um, the one shadow box entitled that she titled finger bone and I really appreciated how you used art as a form of healing and working through one's feelings in this book
2: oh I you know I, I do that in my own life I I my mother was an artist and a, she was an English teacher but she loved to paint and um, we would go out on plein air and she'd set up her easel and my sisters and I would be playing in the marsh or crabbing while she was painting it uh, or down by the beach or on 156, there was this one hill that had the most incredible colors in the fall. And so she'd sort of, there's a little pull out there and she'd set up her easel there. And, you know, and then when we were young, so I grew up in New Britain and there's a wonderful museum of American art there. We went there almost every Saturday after going to the library. So we go to the library, Mm -hmm. then we go to the museum. And then here in Old Lyme, there was the Florence Griswold House, which is now the Florence Griswold Museum. And we went there often when we were young too. Uh, So, you know, just getting lost in the paintings and sculpture. And it's just, so seeing art has always really been important to me. There's a gallery in Old Lyme called the Cooley Gallery. And I... It's like a museum. I mean, it has a wonderful collection of American Impressionists and American Impressionism was born in old Lyme. And so it's, it's very historic and meaningful. I don't have the talent to make uh fine art graphic, um, anything. My sisters both do. And my niece, uh, one of my nieces in particular is a really wonderful artist. I guess my way of doing it is writing, you know, that that's my, healing in my art form uh i don't really call it that that seems it sounds kind of pretentious but it is what i do yeah Yeah. and collage sometimes collage
0: and i've made shadow boxes too
2: it's really cool (laughs) yeah
0: it seems like making shadow boxes would be a good idea. I, I had, since I've moved here, I've become a collector of all things uh, from the beach myself. And there <laughs> comes to a point where you're like, actually, it's funny. My very first walk I took the first morning I lived here, my kids were both with me. They're adults. And, they, and I started collecting shells. And they said, Mom, <laughs> one shell a day. <laughs>
2: they taking over your house and your desk and right exactly yeah. like what yeah. are
0: we gonna do with these <laughs> bags of shells
2: what am I, Do you have a favorite like a, an
0: object that you found on on your walks that you could never part with i do i have a favorite shell a favorite rock and then a favorite piece of beach glass oh and yeah. I recently ha- did move. I had to move and I really had to call through my collections, <laughs> so. I have a feeling, that's, that's a tough one. Um, one of my favorite things to find are
2: channeled whelk ed- egg cases. Have you found those? Yes. And yeah. Whoever opened one of the little, you know, if you do, it's unbelievable. It's full of tiny, almost macroscopic channeled whelk shells. So small. I mean, they'd be the size of, like, um, I don't even know how to describe it. Like I couldn't describe it in inches or even a fraction of an inch, but they're just, it's really amazing. Uh, so yeah. those are some of my favorite things to find.
1: You know, another thing I really appreciated in this novel, uh, The Shadow Box, is the in- incorporating Native American, that it's Native American land that we're on and the burial site, um, that Claire's father taught her about and always told her that it was a sacred space. I tried to find information on Tantamahag. Is that how you say his name?
2: Well, Tantamahag. Tantamahag. That's a, I made him up. He's, oh, you did. Um, okay. I, he, I I created a, a fictional sachem. Um, it's actually the name of a road here in that where. That's what he, I found. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My friend, um. Diana lived in a house on Tantamaheg and I, you know, and she did a lot of research. She was a, you know, very much interested in local history. And so she did a lot of research into what the name meant. And there's a connection to Mohegan, Tanta Mohegan, but Tantamaheg, but here, you know, living in this area, there is so much Native American evidence and lore and it was their land, you know, and where I live there, is a, I live in a rocky, very like ledge granite point. And there's an overhang not too far from my house that the uh, local archeologist came many years ago and believes it was a a cooking spot for the local tribe. And um, he carbon dated it and found, you know, evidence of ancient smoke from their fire. Uh, and I, I do, you know, and, and plus there's stories, stories, uh, dreadful stories of developers digging up Indian burial grounds and, you know, disturbing them, sometimes deals being made to move the, you know, the, the bones, um, but it's just, it's something that it really touches me uh, really deeply. My great grandfather was they call they call it in Canada first Nation as opposed to Native American, so he had one of his relatives was first Nation, so I just feel like a real kinship in that way,
0: yeah, that really comes through in the book in in quite lovely way. these books last day and the Shadow Box were kind of a departure for you, weren't they in that they were mysteries is that true? Do I have that right it it is true i
2: i i it's funny, yes and no because Uh, they are more definite like thrillers or mysteries there's a a, you know a murder at the heart of each of them and you know crime I I feel as if many of my novels have had aspects of mystery in them for one thing I think that every family is full of mysteries Um, and so I write mostly about families and I you know and I think that dates back to my own childhood where you know, I came from a really loving family, but with lots of secrets and lots of, you know, hidden hidden pain and hidden. And I always wanted to know, like, if I could figure out what it was all about, I would be able to help or solve it. And I remember like going through, we had a chest of drawers in our storage room and in, in the bottom drawer were like um, kind of mementos, like relics of my father's time in World War II love letters to my mother and i you know i was like a little detective when i was when i was little young and so that's i think been a theme in most of my novels that there's something to be found out something has happened in the past that affects the present so i feel that that's true but then with starting with last day uh last day was actually inspired by a, a, tr- a real life murder in here in uh well in east Lyme, connecticut that affected my family, affected my, at the, my husband at the time and his children. It was a famous case. It's the victim's name was Ellen Sherman and her husband, Ed, was out on a sailing trip with my husband when he found out that his wife, Ellen, who was five months pregnant, had been murdered in their house in East Lime. And he was far, far away from you know the site of the, the scene of the crime essentially. And for several years after the, the murder, Ed was arrested and he was, you know, it was in the paper, it was on the front page of the New London Day. And one of my stepdaughters, uh, Madeline said, dad, Mr. Sherman couldn't have done it, right? I mean, because it was unthinkable that somebody you know could actually have been a murderer. And Henry said, well, of course he couldn't have because he was with us on the boat. And um when he came to the house to pick me up, he was in the kitchen and mom, his wife, his first wife, and and you guys were all in the kitchen, and we all heard him call Ellen, you know, and and say to her, I love you. And I if you're if there are any problems while I'm gone, be sure to call our friend and um my other stepdaughter, Kristen, said. But dad I picked up the extension and he was talking to a ringing phone oh that is so dark it was so dark and she was the star witness in the trial and he was convicted and he had left the air conditioning up as high as it would go when he after he killed her and it when you know when the police first got there it was up so high and this was in August um that there was frost on the windows, on the window sills, Mm -hmm. and the door was ice cold when they touched it. So he was trying to obviously uh, slow the decomposition and fool the forensic, uh, you know, the medical examiner. So that case has affected all of us and has stayed with me. So that's really why I wrote Last Day was, and and, you know, in Last Day, it's, it's very different. I mean, there are elements, to the novel that reflect what, you know, really happened. But I did what most, I think most fiction writers do is kind of take it in and live with it and have it be in there and then have it be something else when it it comes out on the page. But the feelings were were there, you know, and very much about how it affected the family of Mm. um, the victim and also the family of the killer.
1: Thank you for sharing that, wow. Mm. I know we've been talking for a while but i'm really curious about how you first got into writing what compelled you to start writing
2: so i started really young and my i used to write poems when i was little um you know and they were mostly about nature um some were about emotional things but when i was 11 i had my first anything published it was in the hartford current there was a poetry column at the time called this singing world edited by Malcolm Johnson. And my mother had sent it, had sent the poem in. And I remember, you know, the paper came in the, you know, in the morning and they opened it and it was there. And I thought, Oh, you write a poem and it ends up. (laughs) (laughs) I really had no idea. And then when I was old, you know, and then a short story when I was 15, it was published in American girl magazine. Again, my mother had sent it. She was very supportive of my my writing and I miss her so much because I just wish that she, I mean, she was one of the first people I would show the the work to, but, you know, then I I went to Connecticut College and I I dropped out of college to write and well, for other reasons, but then I started writing short stories and I would send them to the New Yorker and, you know, with a self-addressed uh, stamped envelope, as we used to do, and like, no sooner would I have sent them, they would be, come back to me, you know, and um, so I've learned the hard way that, no, you didn't just write something, and it was published, <laughs> so, but I kept going, and sometimes I don't know how I had the fortitude, because it's, get, rejection is so hard, and that's such a part of being a writer, um, It's happens to all of us, and I mean, I'm assuming to all of us, but I just kept going and I'd send the, send the stories to the New Yorker, they'd come back, I'd send them to Redbook, they'd come back, I'd send them to wherever, you know, various reviews, literary magazines. And I I remember like them, you know, after a while, I stopped opening the envelopes because I knew it was going to be in there, just a story with a rejection slip. And they, it piled up on my desk, like, you know, it got to be pretty big. And then I decided, well, I'm going to, you know, open them up and resubmit them to someplace else. And I remember there was a note from an editor at the New Yorker on, on the rejection slip. And it was like, I can't, I was like dancing on air just to have a note on a rejection slip, like a personal. And I, I believe she said, try We we r- really liked this. In the end, we decided against it, but try us again. And I, so I began getting notes like that. And my first acceptance was to a literary magazine in, in Illinois called Ascent. It was a wonderful, wonderful, quarterly, edited by Dan Curley, and then after that, the Massachusetts Review, and, you know, and then I remember my mother saying, it's easier to write a novel than to write short stories, and I said, how can that possibly be, but, you know, she was right, because you, you know, create a character, character in my case, that's how I start every novel, a character will come to me, and I'll start writing, you know, there's chapter one, and you end it, and then you wake up the next morning and you it's the story is sort of in motion. So you come back to the desk and there's chapter two, you know, it's like the story just goes along and your job is to follow it, you know, and to let let it come out your fingertips, basically, um, you know, and so I wrote my first novel, which was called favored daughters, and nobody's ever read it because it was <laughs> <ready. laughs> but, but my agent, Andrea Cirillo at the Jane RotRosen agency. And I'm with her t- to this day. That was a um, very long time ago. And then the next novel I wrote was a slightly less boring version of Favorite Daughters. Um, <laughs> and it was called Angels All Over Town. And that was my first published novel. Wow, that's great. a great story. Yes. So anybody who's listening who is a writer and hasn't yet you know, had an acceptance, just keep going and just keep getting better and keep reading because that's, I think what, you know, it's so inspiring to read and figure out what you love and what, and and, you know, my my mentor, I guess I'd call him a mentor is Brendan Gill, who was the drama critic of the New Yorker. And we met because at some point, one of the editors, the fiction editors gave him a story of mine because it was about Connecticut and Brendan was a Hartford native and he, you know he kind of showed me the literary ropes to some extent like here i am like an innocent connecticut girl you know pretty sheltered and he invited me down to new york and to the magazine to the offices and then took me to lunch at the algonquin and we're sitting in a banquet in the rose room with william sean at the next table and john updike at the next table and you know alice adams was at was there and at one point you know i, I just I just couldn't believe that this was happening. You know, this was my life, and he's hes the one who said. He called me, dear child, dear child. You must move to New York. You—you you know, it's the center of liter- the literary world, and you must move here. And I did, and I moved to New York. And you know, when he was right in many ways, uh, you know, I've always returned to Connecticut, but I did spend many, many years in the city. Wow. That's a
0: great story. (laughs) It's so interesting because submissions are so different now. And I have writer friends who set goals for themselves to get like a hundred rejections a year, just because that means I'm just, I'm putting it out there and just, I keep submitting to different things, you know? I
2: think that's wonderful. I really do. And that's, you know, just to not be discouraged. Like I had one friend who used to, I mean, I guess that now if you get, I don't submit stories anymore because I'm not writing them very much but I suppose that you get a rejection just an email but in the old days you'd get a printed rejection slip with the you know with the um the logo of the publication and uh, and I had a friend who, pa- who papered her bathroom in rejection slips. And the whole thing, it was like wallpaper and it was all her rejection slips. And I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> it's
0: a, a different form of inspiration, I guess. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if I want all my rejections staring at me every morning, but, um, but it worked for her.
0: <laughs> so you said you're not writing short stories anymore. Are we allowed to ask you what you are working on next? Sure. Um I am writing another another
2: thriller for Thomas and Mercer. My editor there is Liz Pearsons. And uh I bring back some of the characters as I did from Last Day to the Shadow Box. And in this next novel, there will be um the Reed brothers, the Detective Connor Reed and his Coast Guard commander brother Tom Reed. And um and then there are some kind of threads from The Shadow Box that I'm picking up. And then also uh, I've ri- I've been writing young adult novels in the last few years, too, and so I've had three published uh, by Scholastic. My editor there is Amy Friedman, and I'm working on a new young adult for for them. And uh, that is also, a, you know, kind of a, a, there's a crime in it. So those are the two things. And I, I've ri- I've been writing some essays too. Oh,
1: that's cool. Yeah. That's great. Well. 36 is the 36 books it is. under your belt so we have things to read until those new books come out and i'm really looking forward to digging into your backlist
2: oh thank you so much yeah you'll see a lot of hubbard's point in there um but yeah i i sometimes i look at i look at some of the titles and i you know just think of what was going on in my life when i wrote this or that and uh it's just it's
0: interesting trip down memory lane <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good way to look at your backlist. I didn't think about that. You kind of grow and change along with your writing. When I was in, where
2: was I when I wrote that one? You know, and even the ones about Hubbard's Point. You know, in, in some cases, I remember I, I lived in Paris and I w- was in a hotel, uh, and I love writing in hotels. But I was living in Paris, but I was in a hotel in Brussels, and that's where I wrote Crazy in Love, and it was, you know, I. I really was homesick i really missed my my mother and grandmother who lived with us so it was about a mother it was about three generations of women in the you know so mother grandmother and uh grandchildren and i just yeah i can picture it perfectly i can picture the desk i was at and i had a dog at the time gelsey and so yeah It's <laughs> great oh
1: my gosh Luann, thank you so much for spending time talking with us today we're so excited to finally have you on the show Oh, thank you so much,
2: Chris and Emily and Deb for (laughs) making that happen. (laughs) Yes. Introducing us. But yeah, I'm thrilled. And I hope that when we get through this time that we can actually get together. That would be lovely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thanks so much, Luann. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com.
0: Thanks, everyone.